Hello, and welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. Every Thursday, we go to the source of the story to open up the work behind beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation in the media. I'm your host, Charlie, and today I'm bringing in a paper about the InSight Mars landing. I'm your other host, James. I haven't read this paper, but I've been watching the news all week, and I'm very excited about the InSight landing and this paper that you're bringing in, Charlie. Well, thanks, James. So the two of us are PhD students. We read a lot of papers for our own research, so we're pretty good at it. And this podcast is our way of sharing our love for science with anyone who wants to learn about discoveries that affect all of us. We are the Paper Boys. Shout out to Damn It Eugene. I feel like we haven't given him enough love lately, but he's the wonderful artist behind our theme music, which we listen to every week. It's pretty much the only reason I still do this podcast. Not going to lie, sometimes I just listen to it in between just to get me amped for recording. And because it's a great theme song. I play it on repeat in the car (laughs) on long drives. Um, Check out Damn It Eugene on SoundCloud for more of his stuff. He's got a lot of cool stuff. Absolutely. So Charlie, I'm really excited that you're doing a piece on Insight. It's just been buzzing through the news this week. And rightfully so. It's a super exciting mission that landed this week successfully through some very stressful couple minutes. Six minutes. Six minutes. As many headlines have let you know. To be precise. Can't wait to dive into the paper and hear what you have to present. Just want to give a quick shout out to E.L. Mazaris for our grad student highlight for the week. We actually met a while back. She was interning at NASA. She probably has the coolest resume out of anyone I know. She's interned at the Jet Propulsion Lab, which we'll be talking about a lot today. NASA Langley, she's done work with drones and robots, and she's a PhD student now studying antiquity and science. Her highlight is very cool, so definitely stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear hers. Yeah, I was curious, reading her bio, her PhD has a lot to do with history, and so I'm really I'm looking forward to this grad student highlight to see where all those things tie together. A cool blending of the arts. Yeah. Absolutely. So, James, I said I'm talking about the InSight Lander. I'm sure everyone listening probably already knows a good deal about it because it's been in the news like crazy. It landed on Monday successfully. Spoiler alert. Uh-oh. I didn't want to give that away. I was going to watch it on TiVo this weekend, <laughs> man. Uh, yeah. Well, you're too late on that, James. <laughs> so... Um, Yeah, it landed successfully on Monday, and what most of the news really has focused on is this six minutes of terror, which refers to the entry, descent, and landing phase of the mission. And entry, descent, and landing, we'll just use the acronym EDL from now on. Okay. Because that's that's what the engineers call it, and that's what... Cool kids. The cool kids call it that. This EDL gets so much attention because it is arguably the hardest part of the mission, or the most dangerous part of the mission. Okay, like... Mess up and a couple hundred million dollars just burns up. Yeah, like a billion dollars and 10 years of work just literally explodes before your very eyes. Wow. Okay. So I understand many of these landings on Mars are hard. Like from what I've read, the success rate is very low. But why is EDL specifically so challenging? And why is it so hard to land on Mars? Like I know we do it somewhat regularly on Earth. Is it just because it's farther away or... Yeah, no, that's that's a really good question, actually. And we do land on Earth all the time, and we've landed on the moon. We've done that for decades. 
But with Mars, we've been trying for decades, and it's only really been recently that we've been having real success. I believe it's about half of all missions that have attempted to land on Mars have failed. Wow. And of all those missions, the U.S. is the only one that's ever actually successfully done it. Really? Out of all the space agencies? Out of all the space agencies, yeah. Actually, I think ESA had one like last year that failed, didn't it? Or recently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They maybe got like one radio transmission, but it just kind of crashed. Yeah. And I think they failed on EDL. They failed on EDL. Yeah. Okay. Um, Wow. And so the reason why it's so hard on Mars compared to other bodies is actually because of its atmosphere. Really? Yeah. So it's relatively easy to land on the moon because you just, it's got no atmosphere. You kind of can just float down and use your rockets to slow down and then slowly let the gravity pull you down with a little bit of rock. I mean, it's not easy, but it's, you know, like I said, we've been doing that since the 60s. So so aside from like fuel constraints, you pretty much have like absolute control more or less of how you go in. Right. And on Earth, the way that we land something here, like let's say we're bringing our astronauts back from the ISS, you'll see those videos where that capsule's coming down and it's got those parachutes. Mm-hmm. And they can just parachute all the way down to the ground and it's a relatively soft landing because the Earth has a very thick atmosphere. Okay. And so these parachutes can generate a lot of drag. Okay. So I see like the moon, the Earth, and Mars, like kind of got a Goldilocks lineup going. Yeah, it's, well, it's like the opposite of Goldilocks. It's like the twisted evil Goldilocks twin where just, be, you know, between Earth and Mar- it, between Earth and the moon, you've got Mars's atmosphere, which is too thin to use parachutes all the way down like we do on Earth, but it's too thick to just slam into it and then slow down with rockets because it's, it's actually thick enough that it'll still burn up your spacecraft if you don't protect it. So it's sort of like the analogy of a gross, mushy, wet porridge that's just way too hot. It's the worst kind of porridge. It's got raisins and... Oh, raisins. I know. And like maybe tomatoes No sugar. Oh. Ooh. You're just like... Oh, you're making me sick. Let's move on. <laughs> Anyways. Okay. So Mars has this challenging atmosphere then. Yeah. So you need to be able to protect it from like the all the frictional heating and the big fireball that's going to happen when you hit the atmosphere. But then you also need to be able to land it gently without parachutes. So you've got wow. this very complicated architecture that has to happen in order to, to accommodate both of those things. One thing that I heard just in the lead up to these six minutes of terror, they were saying, too, that there's enough of an atmosphere that if they don't get the angle correct, they could just bounce off and be shot back into space. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's, I'll talk about that. Okay. So what the news has all been focusing on is, like you said, the six minutes of terror which the six minutes actually refers to the time from when the spacecraft hits the atmosphere to the time that it lands on the surface. And it's this intense, nerve-wracking, very short portion of a six-month-long mission, well, multi-year mission, if you include the time that it's going to be on the surface, that totally makes or breaks the whole thing. Okay, and so this six minutes of terror is what we generally associate with with those exciting videos from Mission Control at the Jet Propulsion Lab, like for Curiosity, for example, when everyone was celebrating, there's the guy with the yeah. mohawk and stuff. Like what you watched on Monday with the InSight landing, with all those people sitting in the room and then cheering was like, that was their six minute. And you could see there was literally terror on their the face. The terror, okay. So with this paper I brought in, I, I'm kind of breaking from the Paperboys format a little bit. So normally we would bring in a paper that generated a lot of news. In this case, It's really like just the lander itself has generated all the news. There's not like a specific paper that's being covered here. 
So I wanted to find a paper that gets at the heart of what a hard problem this really is and looks at some of that really technical detail that's not really covered by the news. So the news covers like, oh yeah, this six minutes of terror is very hard. It's a hard problem. And I think everyone can kind of grasp that it is a hard problem. But I think a lot of people don't really understand the scale of that problem. And so I really want to just use this as an opportunity to impress upon you and anyone else who's listening how much actual planning and work goes into attacking such a hard problem. That's a great purpose. And also, I mean, there must just be tons of science and research that have enabled us to even plan such a mission, to even have these six minutes of terror, the science and work that's gone behind it. Oh, yes. It's tremendous. It's insane. Just getting there in the first place is like a whole slew of problems. So this episode is not even going to be like a comprehensive coverage of how we solve this problem. It's more, I'm bringing in this paper that goes over the design and analysis of their route to get from Earth to Mars, basically to get from ground on Earth to ground on Mars. And I just want to give you like a slice of what they've done to solve that problem. Like a small slice of terror pie. Yeah. And hopefully that slice gives you a taste for what that whole pie really looks like, you know. And then maybe if you're intrigued by certain parts of it, you'll kind of dig down the rabbit holes yourself. Because there's no possible way in one episode I could cover everything about how they solved this EDL problem. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm excited to hear more about this. So what is the paper that you decided on? So it's actually a conference paper, not a journal paper. It was presented at a conference. It was the 24th AAS slash AIAA Space Flight Mechanics Meeting. So this is like a pretty specialized conference for people who work on astrodynamics and EDL trajectories. Okay. So the actual audience for this paper then is... Highly full, technical. Highly technical. I mean, this is like the experts bouncing ideas off the experts. Yes. And like trying to poke holes in each other's in each other's work in order to make it better. Wow. This isn't, cool. this isn't a broad audience thing. There's literally like in this 20-page paper, there's one sentence about what Insight's mission is. And then the rest of the 20 pages is just like tables and charts and numbers and requirements and everything. Holy cow. What's the paper called? It's called 2016 Mars Insight Mission Design and Navigation. The authors are Fernando Abalera, Ray Frauenholz, Ken Fuji, Mark Wallace, and Tung Han Yu. All of them are JPL engineers. Okay. So before we dive in, I noticed in the title, you said 2016, but I couldn't help but notice it's currently 2018. Is it? Oh, shoot. I guess <laughs> I brought in the wrong paper. Is uh, I imagine for people who are as detail-oriented to send a spacecraft to Mars, that was not just a typo. No, not a typo. Actually, so this is a quick aside, but InSight was supposed to launch in 2016. Oh, really? And get okay. to Mars in 2016, yeah. But it failed like a crucial vacuum test while essentially while it was on the launch pad. I don't think it was literally on the launch pad, but it was like integrated for launch. And Whoa. they were doing some of their final testing and they found a leak in one of the mo in like the actual science instrument that they're most concerned with. Okay. So they had to deintegrate it all. They had to deconstruct the satellite, fix it, put on some new stuff to make it work again. And that took two years and $150 million. Holy cow. I mean, it just gives you like an idea how intense one little problem is. Like oh. a small little gas leak. Yeah, like, there's your first taste. But all that aside, even though they had to delay the whole thing by two years, this paper is still the actual design of how they sent it. They just had to delay the launch window by two years. So nothing actually changed about the way they approached this problem. And like this is actually still, you know, this is the only paper I could find on this design. It's not like they redesigned it. Okay. So I'm I may be diving into the weeds a little too early, but that seems like a huge change, delaying your launch window from 2016 to 2018. Like, 
isn't the relative position between Earth and Mars like changing? Is it repeated enough that you still have a good launch window? Just like two well, years interestingly, later? and maybe this is why they specifically delayed it two years. I believe that the launch opportunities to go to Mars are best every two years. I believe it's like it's roughly every two years that that window opens up that makes it a good time to go to Mars. Okay, so but that the was... other the other thing is I think with Insight they were able to put it on like a it's a very light spacecraft compared to other ones that we've sent. And so they were able to put it on like a pretty heavy rocket and just send it kind of on a fast track instead of having to do some slow, low fuel kind of maneuver. Okay. So they're maybe less dependent on doing these like slower maneuvers and relative positioning and things right. like that. Right. Okay. So now actually diving into this paper. Can't wait. <laughs> they, they, kind of go through this whole design and one of the things they identify here is some of the requirements that they need to meet. And so I'll, I'll just rattle off a couple of these requirements and hopefully it gives you a sense of how tightly constrained this problem is. So one is that they have to approach EDL with a V-infinity upper limit of 3.941 kilometers per second. Like Whoa. so, that's so precise down to literally down to the meter per second how fast they have to be going. Wait, but that's insane. Like, they need meter precision on their velocities. I don't... How do they even do that? Like, I know on Earth with an airplane, you can put a sensor on the fuselage and you measure, like, the air particles going across. But, like, there's no air particles in space. Yeah. And then if the atmosphere is so thin, I imagine that's, like, super challenging, if not impossible. Yeah. Well, and also, like, they need to know the velocity the whole way between Earth and Mars. It's not just when they hit the atmosphere. So yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's crazy actually how they measure this stuff. How do they do it? So one way they do this is that they use what's called the deep space network, which is like a whole array of radio telescopes that NASA has like all over the world. And they can measure speed using essentially using like the Doppler effect. So the Doppler effect is think of like when there's a truck driving by you, if it's honking its horn, it sounds high pitched when it's coming towards you and then it passes you and it sounds lower pitched. It's just because the sound is an actual wave traveling at a certain speed. And so if the truck is moving a certain speed, it's going to affect how that wave sounds. So you can use the same thing with the signals that you expect to see from InSight. And then knowing the speed of light that those signals are traveling at, you can, you can see how much the, they've shifted by. Okay. So it'd be like, I know your voice is at two kilohertz. And then as you're running away from me, I can measure it with like a microphone and I see it's at 1.9 kilohertz. So I can back out the velocity kind of like that. Yeah. So it's just like that, you know, but with light signals instead of sound signals. Okay. Um, cool. So that's how the, that's one way they can get the spacecraft's speed. But then they also want to know its position because they have to figure out what the shape of its orbit is, which they can get from a position and a speed. The way they get position is really cool. And really? I don't know if this is the only way they do it, but this is definitely a way that they do it. It's called Delta DOR, which I am forgetting the acronym right now. But they take two of these radar dishes in the deep space network. They pick two that are very far apart from each other on the Earth. And then they have them both look at the satellite and measure a signal from it. And then immediately after that, they have them both look at a quasar. Really? And they measure the signal from the quasar. Whoa. Which, like, I don't even know what a quasar is. It's like a like some galaxy energy pulse and, like, maybe a black hole or something just shooting out radio frequency energy. Dude, that sounds so futuristic. It's it's crazy, yeah. So then they, so they measure this quasar, and because, like, we know something about it, I guess, they kind of use that as, like, their calibration. And so they'll, they'll, they'll see what the difference in signal between the two dishes measuring the quasar is, and then they'll use that to calibrate looking at the difference in signal they measured for InSight. And then they can use that difference to figure out actually exactly how far away InSight is. 
Wow. Can we just take a little moment and like give humanity a pat on the back? Seriously. That is awesome. Yeah. It, like, it doesn't it make us sound like an alien civilization. Yeah, man. Like, kind of having this like Planet of the Apes moment. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, at the end, sorry, spoiler alert, comes back and it's like, <laughs> oh my God, I found the aliens. They're us. Oh, yeah. Like that... Maybe Oumuamua was us from the future. Dude, stop. That's a great callback <laughs> and you're blowing my mind right now. That's I, quasars, man. But yeah, it's like it's like, oh yes, they're a type one B civilization. They are able to use quasars to navigate interplanetary <laughs> space. You know, they've discovered the story of Goldilocks. <laughs> the story of Goldilocks. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that is really cool. Two very high tech ways of measuring speed and position. Yeah, I mean that's like two things that we just take for granted here on earth i know i do for sure measuring velocity and position like, oh we have gps yeah which nasa built by the way <laughs> problem solved <laughs> yeah <laughs> wow it shows you how complex these things get yeah it's great and just needing to know how fast you're going right there like you asked that question on the very first requirement that i read off there and there's boom an entire like planetary network of radar telescopes required just to measure your velocity and and then they need to like schedule time to use those dishes oh man because those are those are the dishes that they used to talk to like every spacecraft that's ever been launched yeah right? basically yeah so nasa has to like very tightly schedule when they're being used for what and that's a whole nother factor in how you can track insight is that you need to know that you're going to be able to use the deep space network frequently when it's getting closer to mars and you need to know more about its orbit so like they actually put that in this paper it's like a variable in their problem is how frequently are we going to be able to use deep space network at this date relative to our landing whoa i can just imagine like through the project hierarchy like if your project manager and chief engineer and then all the engineers working underneath them to like do the designs there must be huge departmental pressure as well like between oh yeah principal investigators like you don't want to be that person that screws up and like takes deep space network time from like the curiosity mission and yeah. then you never find a job at jpl again yeah like you piss off the wrong the wrong person and oh man <laughs> wasting deep space network time that's crazy yeah so you know you ask the very innocuous question of oh well how do they know how fast they're going <laughs> and let's bear in mind that their requirement is is to the meter per second we're talking about measuring something that's millions of miles away like like a hundred million miles away and we're we're going to measure it to the meter per second Wow, that's impressive. It's impressive that they even know that they need to know it to that precision. Oh, yeah. Like, like why couldn't it just be 3.9 plus or minus 0.1, you know? Yeah, someone asks me how fast you need to go to enter into Mars, I'd be like, well, not too fast. <laughs> I'd be like, about four? No, 3.941. <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah, and that's, a, not to be misleading, that's actually not the speed that they're going to hit the atmosphere with. That's their quote-unquote V-infinity, which is like the excess velocity of their flyby trajectory. It's, I don't know, too technical. They're actually going to hit the atmosphere at like six kilometers a second. Wow, okay, so like four miles per second. Yes, yeah, very fast. Okay. So going back to these requirements, they have another requirement that says they have to land in a region bounded by five degrees north to two degrees south. And so I did a little bit of math on that. You know, Mars is a little bit smaller, so the degree separation is not quite the same. But, you know, when you work out the different radius and stuff, that's about like a 450-mile spread north to south, which is about the north-south coverage of, like, Washington plus Oregon. Okay. Do you know why they chose that area? I think that InSight generally is supposed to measure 
something near the equator, maybe. I, I don't know if it had to be near the equator, but I do know that they picked a region called Elysium Planitia as their landing zone. So I'm just guessing that this is kind of the north-south bound of Elysium Planitia. But what's crazy is, you know, we're talking about shooting a satellite from Earth at Mars, which is like gazillions of miles away, and you're not just trying to hit the planet. It's it's one thing to be like, oh, I need to just hit the target, like you're shooting a gun at a target. It's like, no, you need to hit this one specific flat plane that's only 450 miles on the target that's spinning. It's like the most insane game of mini golf you could ever imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With rockets. Yeah. It's like you're at a driving range and you're not supposed to land on a green. You're supposed to hit a mosquito that's at the back net, like a particular mosquito. But what they didn't tell you is that that mosquito's traveling at like whatever Mars is velocity, 20,000 oh, yeah. miles per hour. The mosquito's flying. It's not sitting on the net. It's, it's zipping around, you know? Wow. Yeah. So don't play against people from JPL at mini golf. <laughs> yeah, I Whoa. guess not. Um, so they, another, another requirement here on this trajectory is that it has to provide line of sight to the Earth from cruise stage separation to touchdown plus 60 seconds. So what that means is like during basically during the EDL phase, it needs to have line of sight communication to Earth. Okay. That's crazy. That's a crazy requirement. Yeah. Because you're launching this thing six months in advance. So can the spacecraft like build in some fudge factor of like couple orbits? So then you just keep orbiting until that area is in that no. landing site is in a line of sight? No, 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 no. So they don't they don't get any orbits. They have to just hit this thing direct. No orbits. No, because to do orbits you have to like fire a rocket to get captured into that orbit. So this is literally like they're get, they're getting there. They have barely any fuel to even do the landing. They need to just hit Mars direct. Like they have to hit their mark. You know, with Apollo, they went to the moon and they're going on this sort of trajectory and then they they fire their rockets and they get themselves captured into an orbit. And then they have a bunch of time to plan out, like, we're going to separate the modules, go down to the surface, you know. They've got all that time. Yeah, yeah. But this is like, with Mars, you've got to hit it smack on exactly where it needs to be first try. Otherwise, you just zing off into space. You know, and it takes, six, what is it, six months to get there from launch. So it's like, hey, I'm inviting you to a party six <laughs> months from now, and you have to be there within the minute. Yeah, and the party's on Mars. <laughs> and the party's on Mars. <laughs> oh, yeah. And by the way, you have to slow down from going six miles per second <laughs> yeah. to get into Mars. Yeah. So it's not only, again, so it's not only are they having to target from this far away at this time, but they have to know that when they get there, it's going to be line of sight to Earth. And then the other requirement on this is that it has to be able to support telecommunications with the Mars Reconnaissance Orb Orbiter, which is a satellite that's orbiting Mars, again, for that same period of like the EDL duration. Wow. But And that's even harder because it's one thing to be like, oh, we, we can see Earth. Like, that's half the sky. But this orbiter is like zipping around Mars however many times a day or, or however many times a month. And you have to make sure that you get there at a time that it actually zips in your field of view. That just adds a whole nother crazy constraint. And yeah, it, like what if I told you that um, you had to go do a one-mile run, but you can't do it unless the ISS is flying overhead, that you can like see the ISS in the sky? Where would you, I mean, how would you even start? Where would you, how would you even know? I would just, I would give up from the start, <laughs> yeah. honestly. I mean, I keep, you know, we keep coming up with these analogies and like, truthfully, it's not to offend anybody's intelligence. I think personally, Charlie, I'm just like blown away with the complexity. It's honestly, the analogies are like the only way that you can really grasp it. Yeah. Because if you try to think about how much work goes into this and how hard this thing that they've solved is, it's just... Nothing in our daily life that we are conscious of doing or using is like this complex. No, and probably yeah. even 
for the engineers there, it's like you just work on a small subsystem. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy because no one value it. Yeah. No one person came up with the overall idea of this. It's like a, a human hive mind has come up with the ultimate thing that this turned into. Yeah. Like the, the video of the control room, mission control, like we were watching earlier this week. It's yeah. like behind every one of those people who was in there celebrating and that control room was packed is like 10 to 20 to 30 other people. Oh, and also bear in mind that that room full of people is just the EDL team. Oh, that's just EDL team? Oh, yeah, team? no, that's not like, I mean, well, the main guy who who came up with the idea for the science payload was there because he's like the head of the thing. But mm-hmm. no, like the people who, who are going to be studying the seismometer data, they're not in that room. Like these are just the people who worked on the heat shield and the retro rockets and the landing legs and like all the wow. systems that go into the actual EDL. And that was a room of like 50 people. Whew. That's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, that requirement that it has to be in communications with the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, it turns out actually, and they talk about this here in the paper, they're going to require the orbiter to actually make a, a change in its orbit to support this mission. Wow. Yeah. So it like rotated its orbit a little bit with some maneuver in order to actually be able to see insight on the day of the landing. Oh, sweet. Yeah. It's pretty cool. That's really cool. So now moving down the requirements list that is seemingly never ending, they need to hit the atmosphere with an entry flight path angle. So that's the angle between the direction that it's headed, like its velocity vector, and the horizon. So like if you were flying perfectly straight, that'd be zero degrees. And then if you like pitched up, that would be positive whatever degrees. Okay. Um, So the angle that it has to hit the atmosphere at is negative 12.5 degrees plus or minus 0.26 degrees. Whoa, that is... Very precise. It's so specific. And so you asked the question earlier about, you know, skipping off the atmosphere or whatever. So like in Apollo 13, mm-hmm. there's that whole scene about they have to get their trajectory just right because if they hit the atmosphere at too steep of an angle, then they burn up in the atmosphere. And if they hit it at too shallow of an angle, then they skip off like a stone on the water. Oh, um, wow. And so I think everyone, that's sort of in the popular knowledge that everyone kind of knows like, oh, yeah, you got to hit it at the right angle. But this gives you the exact number on what that angle is. It's plus or minus 0.26 degrees. No room to sneeze. Like uh, No. You like, just, I, like, I don't even have a concept of what 0.26 degrees is. Like, that's so much more precise than anything. Yeah, like, like you couldn't even make that angle, like, with your arms. No. Like, oh, man. I'm, like, honestly just stupefied <laughs> that you can even, like, make that as a requirement. Because that means that there was someone who's, like, A, that there are people who understand the atmosphere composition of Mars well enough and the aerodynamics of the heat shield and the spacecraft as it's coming in to know like, okay, this is the angle that you have to go for. And they've developed simulations that are detailed enough to show you what that error is and give you a resolution that's finer than 0.26 so you can back that out. And then like... Well, what's crazy is like they did the... They did the simulation at negative 12.77 degrees and the ship blew up. Yeah. And they did the the simulation at negative 12.24 degrees <laughs> to three degrees and it blew up. And, and so they've identified this tiny little sliver of where it has to be. And then, you know, so it's hard enough to identify that. Now, imagine that you're in sight and you have to hit that. Like that's It's crazy. And like in the back of my mind, I'm thinking like, you know, maybe they're being really conservative, which I'm sure they are. I'm sure there's margin on those tolerances. So like maybe it's 0.35 degrees plus minus. But 
Whoa, getting real loose with those degrees now. I know. I know. <laughs> Still is tiny. Another tenth of a degree. Yeah. But you have to realize that with the proportion of failed missions on Mars, maybe it's really not that conservative. Like, I think that it matters a lot. Yeah. Like yeah. a ton. So hats off. Yeah. Hats off, and so engineers. So, they, so in order to actually like hit that very specific angle, they have, and they talk about this a lot in the paper, they have built in six trajectory correction maneuvers that take place. Well, they call them TCMs. Okay. Six TCMs that take place during the time when they leave Earth to the time that they get to Mars. Okay. And so these happen like sort of infrequently at the start and then more frequently as you get closer to Mars. But it's actually an opportunity to you use rockets on board the InSight spacecraft to actually like very slightly fine tune your trajectory. Okay. So I have a question about that then. How sensitive is the spacecraft trajectory at each of those maneuvers like do you have more margin for error at the first trajectory like it seems like you'd have some error propagation as these maneuvers build up like if you accidentally get off in the first one it's like you'd be potentially screwed at the end yeah what's interesting is that the further away you are the more that like a mistake is going to cost you but the more time you have to fix it you know okay so it's like the closer you get the more important it is that you're getting it right but you know you ask that question and like that's not a new question. They they have a whole like two pages about that in this paper. Really? About yeah, about specifically okay. about the TCMs and like the probability of crashing into Mars if they mess up at a given TCM. Oh wow. And okay. So they're working out that probability for each one. They say like, okay, well if we fired this one and it was off by this much, but then everything failed after that, what's the probability that we're gonna crash into Mars? So do they they must just do like full Monte Carlo simulation. So like sort of random simulations of all the possibilities, right? I mean, yeah, basically. Like, they run through every every scenario and they and they calculate the problem. So it's like, it, it's relatively, like, simple calculations of just saying, like, okay, well, what's the size of Mars and what's kind of the size of our trajectory possibilities? But it's like, if you were throwing a dart at a dartboard, you know, a mile away and saying, like, all right, well, what's the chance that I hit a bullseye, basically? Okay, so it's sort of like a loose, like, dartboard probability analysis yeah sure but you know they run that for like every possible point of failure along the way like at each of these tcms okay so all of this stuff that we've talked about so far and like how much crazy thought has to go behind every little tiny thing hasn't even gotten to our six minutes of terror this is all just from earth to getting to mars but now we want to talk about edl that's the problem that everyone is so concerned with right so through all that work that we, meaning hum- humans, not you and me, <laughs> did to get us there is this very specific thing. Now we're in a position to hopefully have our best chance of success of flying through the atmosphere and getting to the surface. <laughs> so all that for six minutes of terror. Yeah, just just to hope that it works better, you know. Wow. Um, so I'll, I'll walk through some of the steps. There's a really great figure in the end of this paper that um, you guys can check out when we post it on the website. So six and a half minutes before they hit me hit the atmosphere, they start turning the spacecraft so that like its heat shield is pointing towards the atmosphere. Okay. And they use like actual rockets to make that turn happen. And then they actually hit the atmosphere when they're at an altitude of 125 kilometers, and they hit it at 6.3 kilometers per second. Okay. Which is very fast. <laughs> very fast. It, you know, it slams into this atmosphere. It heats up the heat shield to like something like 2,000 degrees, or uh, it's just a crazy number. Whoa. And it has a deceleration of nine and a half Gs. That would knock me out. <laughs> it would it'd be a bad day for sure. 
Absolutely. Um, when they're nine kilometers above the surface, they deploy the parachute, and they're going Mach 1.5. Wow. That's impressive that you can even deploy a parachute at that speed. Yeah. And what's cool, like you can actually look up videos of NASA testing these supersonic parachutes, and they've gotten like really good at doing it because this is kind of how they've done all their Mars landings. Okay. So this is like a NASA specialty. It, it kind of is a NASA specialty, yeah. These parachutes are very well understood. Amongst many <laughs> other aspects of this whole mission, I guess. Yeah. And so, interestingly, all of this has happened with just, like, atmospheric drag so far. And they said here in the paper that 99% of the spacecraft's energy gets shed just by drag. And then it's that last 1% that they need to stop with rockets. Wow. There's, like, so many elements that are going into slowing down the spacecraft. Figuring out the angle just to enter into the atmosphere and then doing this complex maneuver so you can control your three-dimensional velocity. It's nuts. Parachutes. Yeah, Yeah, and then the parachutes. And then, so then, like I said, you can't just use the parachutes to get all the way down to the ground. So 15 seconds after they deploy the parachute, they get rid of the heat shield. They literally just like pop it off. And then 10 seconds after that, they deploy the legs out. Five seconds after that, they activate a radar, which is actually used to tell them how far away the ground is and how fast they're approaching it. Oh, cool. Okay. It's because they want to, like, in the end, they want to land at a very low speed. And so they need to be able to actually measure that, and they need to know where they're going to land. So they be able to measure that very accurately and very precisely. Right. So they've got this radar, you know, blasting signals down to the ground, and then... At about 1.3 kilometers altitude, the InSight lander itself actually pops out of this whole system. And so now it's just totally on its own. And it starts doing uh, what's called a gravity turn, which is actually a pretty cool, I don't know, this is going to be a total side note, but it's a really cool little maneuver that they do. Have you ever seen when a rocket launches from Earth, like if you watch like a SpaceX launch or something on YouTube, and you notice how they don't actually go straight up to get to space? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. They kind of like, they go up for a little bit and then they turn to the side and they shoot off sideways. Oh, so that's intentional. That's not just like relative motion or... Yeah, no, they're actually like physically turning the rocket. That's called a gravity turn because if you were to go straight up, you end up losing a lot of energy just to the fact that gravity is acting against the thrust of the rocket. Huh. And so they do this turn because they're trying to get most of their speed to go sideways to get into orbit and then they just need a little bit of that to get up high enough to be in orbit. And so... What InSight does is basically the opposite. So it's coming into the atmosphere with this like very horizontal velocity, and it needs to slow down. And so they're taking advantage of the fact that gravity will get them from their altitude down to the surface. They want to use the rockets as efficiently as possible, so they're only going to use it to slow down their horizontal velocity. So they kind of do that rocket launch thing that you see SpaceX do in reverse. They're coming in sideways and they're burning their rockets and then like slowing down along that sideways path. So by the time they're done burning, you're basically almost in a fully vertical trajectory. Yes, exactly. Wow. So they start doing that gravity turn at about uh, 1.08 kilometers of altitude. Approximately. Like like very specific, you know. (laughs) Um, And then they start dropping down uh, at 8 meters per second and then they touch down with a vertical velocity of 2.3 meters per second, which I think is about 5 miles an hour. And they still have a little bit of horizontal velocity, but, but not much. And then once it touches down, they have it set so that as soon as one leg touches the ground, all these rockets shut off. There's 12 rockets on the thing and they're all controlling it, making sure it's not going to flip over. As soon as one leg touches, it's like, done. Wow. I mean, there must be at least one PhD, if not multiple, who just like just worked on that one controller cutoff for the rackets. Oh, yeah. Touches. Like imagine 
Oh, it makes me almost like sick to think about the scenario that like talk about fumbling at the goal line, you know, like you get down and just you touch and then the rockets don't shut off. And the something. Rock, yeah. And insights just like laying on its side. Oh, man. I can't even imagine that. It'd be so horrible. Yeah. So every tiny little aspect of that whole six minutes of terror EDL sequence that we just talked about, it's like thousands of steps that have to happen in perfect sequence in the exact right order in order for this thing to actually land. And it worked. That's what's crazy. It's insane. It's insane. Just the this like symphony of very highly technical, very precise mechanisms and systems. Yeah. I mean, it's really together. like beautiful, you know, like when was the last time something that you planned out worked perfectly? I got groceries yesterday. <laughs> I planned to do that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you forgot the jelly or something, you know? Absolutely did. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm basically on the same level as inside. Yeah, like imagine if forgetting the jelly cost your country a billion dollars and all of your friends and family 10 years of their lives. I'd go back and get the jelly. <laughs> You'd <laughs> make damn honest. sure you got the jelly. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's really, that's the paper, I'll say, quote unquote. I, I really have just focused on the parts of the paper that had to do with the EDL sequence and how we actually got to the situation that allowed the EDL sequence to happen properly. There's a lot more stuff in this paper about kind of the launch window design and all those sensitivities. It's really fascinating, really technical. So I don't know that I would actually advise trying to read it, but maybe just scan through it for, for some of the figures and charts and stuff. Well, thanks so much for bringing that article in, Charlie. I'm really glad you did just with all the news about Insight. It's so cool to get a better appreciation for all the hard work and time and energy that people spent making this a success and bringing excitement really to people all over the world. Millions of people all over the world were watching with joy when that first image came back. Oh, yeah. Of the spacecraft sitting there. And it's still crazy to me to think that really that's, that image was like, you know, what, six, seven, eight minutes old by the time it arrived. Like all this had happened, all this terror that we were experiencing was like done. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So because Mars is so far away, speed of light, sluggish as it is, means that when we first started hearing that it had even reached the atmosphere, it had already either landed or died. It was like Schrodinger's lander, you know, <laughs> like it's either alive or dead. We just need to receive confirmation of which one it is, you know. Absolutely. It's sort of like a weird time trip, you know, back into the early 20th century when like information just spread so slowly. So like you had a presidential election and it was like days <laughs> before you found out. Yeah. <laughs> now you find out everything in like yeah. a microsecond. You so. wait for your milkman to come by <laughs> to tell you the results. <laughs> exactly. Like milkman just got a postcard from Curiosity Rover saying it landed okay. Yeah. <laughs> not quite, but uh, something like that. That's No, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> Well, um, that was awesome. So based on that, what did you think about how the news articles did to describe these six minutes of terror? Yeah, I mean, so this is one that literally every single news outlet in the world had something on. So I could go out and find 10 terrible articles. I could go out and find 10 great ones. So I kind of have like a great, a fine, and a bad. Okay. Um, like Goldilocks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. The great one, Washington Post, NASA's InSight Mars Explorer lands safely on the red planet. This one came out, I think this was on Monday after the landing happened. It covers everything. Like if you knew absolutely nothing about InSight beforehand, like you didn't even know it existed, and then you read this article, you'd actually be very well informed on the whole mission and the whole six minutes of terror and all the implications of the science that it's going to be going on. It's a very good article. Definitely read that one. Check it out. We'll put it on the website. 
fair assessment of what actually happened. Yes. Astronomy Magazine said NASA's Mars InSight is landing today. So I took these from a bunch of different time points, but yeah. This one's pretty good. It's actually got a lot of like numbers, kind of like the numbers that I was rattling off with those requirements. It's got a lot of that kind of stuff, which I appreciated. I don't know that everyone would love that. Now on to the bad porridge, <laughs> which was uh, Live Science said, get ready for Insight Mars Lander's six minutes of terror. And then in their article, they incorrectly refer to the six minutes as the time delay between Mars and Earth. When like if they had talked to even a single JPL engineer or even read like a single other news article about EDL, they would know that the, the X minutes of terror refers to the actual landing sequence, not the, the time that you're waiting to hear about it. Wow. They could have just looked at the Washington Post article, gotten they everything they needed to know. They could have looked at any article. Like It just shows they did no even remotely basic research. That's like a, just a huge glaring error to make, in a, especially in a science website, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Disappointing. Um, and then they also talked about like it being a rocket-powered trip through Mars's upper atmosphere when they're really talking about the part where it's the heat shield is all, you know, fireball-y. Huh. Like I think that there is a little bit of rocket going on. Like there's some cold gas thrusters that are just making sure it stays oriented correctly. You're not just like jetting around in your rocket spacecraft like checking out the sights of Mars and then just like slowly tapping down like no I mean the it's rocket not like the lunar lander kind of thing right the rocket powered part is the very end and so it's just very misleading to talk about it in that way for something that is again so well covered and so easy to just find out the basic information on mm -hmm. and there's I just picked that one line there's a lot of little lines like that that kind of just give you a slightly misleading picture of what's really going on for being a news website dedicated to science you'd hope to be a little closer to the facts. Exactly. Exactly. And then I'll just throw this one in because it was cool. Wired had a little article that had a little video game in it. Ooh. So it's try landing insight on Mars without exploding. Is this like the Quop version of Mars landing? Kind of. It's not as funny as Quop, but you definitely feel as accomplished when well, you succeed. So I'll have to check it out while I'm procrastinating from doing my real work. Tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know what Quop is, check out our episode on paralysis and spinal cord stimulation. It's a fun online video game. James is addicted. I'm addicted. <laughs> Absolutely. So that is the Insight EDL rundown. Not even comprehensive, just like Hey, if you're listening, hopefully you now really grasp how extensive this problem is and how hard it was to solve and just how impressive it is that they actually did it correctly. Well, thank you for bringing that paper in. It is really amazing what they're able to achieve. And it's just very inspiring for me to see the complexity of the system and how hard of a challenge this really is. Taking a step further back and showing how science and history relate we have E.L. Mazaris coming in for our grad student highlight. She is a PhD student currently at Brown, but she can describe her research better than me. So take a listen as E.L. describes her research for the next two minutes. Hey, paper boys. I'm E.L. Mazaris, a first-year PhD student at Brown University in the history of the exact sciences in antiquity. That field is a bit unusual, so I'd like to unpack it some. I study the formation, application, transmission, and impact of mathematics, astronomy, physics in the ancient world, particularly ancient Mesopotamia and the Greek and Latin-speaking world. I got into this field by looking at how the language that we use to describe science, particularly metaphor, changes over time and in translation, in the hopes that these changes can tell us something about how scientific concepts were understood in their time. 
Situating ancient science like this also sheds light on how widespread scientific understanding was and how it overlaps and interacts with other ways of understanding the world. One of the issues that often plagues my field has to do with how progress gets publicized. Often our results, new understanding of the topic, the identification or interpretation of new data, are presented only as a way of further understanding modern-day science. For example, a recent interpretation of how Babylonians calculated Jupiter's displacement along the ecliptic demonstrated that they treated this displacement as an area of a trapezoid, which they partitioned into smaller trapezoids of equal area in order to run calculations. This process sounds perhaps eerily familiar for students of calculus, and these results were often reported as math whizzes of ancient Babylon figured out forerunner of calculus. That's an exact quotation of an article title. But thinking of their achievements in terms of how it led to us and to our math, that diminishes what they did to the title of precursor, and it assumes some false ideas about how the Babylonians themselves were thinking about their calculations and applications. So I'm excited to get to play in this field more and work on how my field gets communicated to the outside world. It's one of the reasons why I love what you guys are doing on this podcast so much. So thanks, Paperboys, for inviting me to talk about this. If you're interested in knowing more about my research, you can find me on Twitter at IASTranger. Wow. Well, thank you, EL. Uh, I especially appreciated that you've brought in a misleading headline. You, you would make a great paper girl if you ever visited Seattle. We'll uh, send you an honorary medal uh, <laughs> once we have those printed. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for sharing. It, uh, it's really interesting to hear that sort of looking back on history and how we sort of undervalue their scientific discovery. I certainly hope for future civilizations, if you're listening to this podcast, you look back upon paper boys as a positive voice for science. Oh, not inventing any calculus or anything, but close enough. The next best thing. <laughs> the next best thing. We want to thank you guys all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we really hope you subscribe to the show. We have new episodes coming out every Thursday that you can find on our website, paperboyspodcast.com. James is too kind to ask, but I would ask that you please tell a friend about Paperboys. Anyone that you know who's kind of into science, maybe you're into science yourself and you're trying to get your friends into science, just be like, yeah, check out Paperboys. It's not bad. <laughs> we also love to engage with our fans and listeners on Twitter or Instagram at paperboyspod. Also, if you ever have feedback, you'd like to engage more about anything that we talked about in our episodes, or if you have any story requests, please feel free to reach out as well at our email, paperboyspod at gmail.com. That's right. We actually got a lot of great feedback on the Oumuamua episode, engaged in some conversations there. and That was actually a listener request as well, wasn't it? That one was a request. Came in on Twitter about the Oumuamua paper. That was great. That was a fun episode to do. Yeah. So we always would love some more uh, engagement about what we're doing here. And you'll know that it may actually make it onto the show. So, Well, thank you so much. And please join us again next week for another exciting edition of Paper Boys. Thanks for listening.